Imagine with me, if you will, a young man, and this young man is contemplating joining the army. And as he's doing this, uh, he has to understand a bit about joining the army. Uh, He's got to make a choice, a volitional choice. Uh, And once he makes that choice, he knows that he is at the mercy of his commanding officers. He's always has to stand in obedience to them. He has to do what they ask of him because at the end of the day, it's better for him. It's better for his other soldiers who are with him that he is obedient in all things to his commanding officer. But he has to be obedient even if he doesn't like the orders of his commanding officer. Isn't that fun to be a soldier? And even if you don't agree with your commanding officer, you have to say yes. You have to be obedient. Your yes is always has to be on the table, no matter what your commanding officer asks of you. And so this young man has to understand that. It's part of his thinking process to say yes or no in joining the army. This soldier also has to understand that he has to be conformed to the image of the army. They wear the same clothes. They use the same language. Uh, for the most part, they live in the same place. They move together in groups. They're always doing the same thing in a uniform fashion because it's for their good and for the protection of their country. But first, before they make this decision, every person who joins the army has to count the cost. They have to count the cost of joining the army. In the same way, Jesus in Luke actually asked every person to do the same thing, to count the cost of being a Christian. It's not a willy-nilly decision that we make when we wake up on a random Tuesday morning, hey, today I want to be a Christian. But it's a decision that you have to make willingly but also while counting the cost. Jesus says in Luke, in chapter 14, starting in verse 27, that whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We can think of many people, maybe in your own life, as, who claim to be Christians, and after a time they fell away because they didn't truly count the cost of what it meant to follow Christ. Just like a soldier who doesn't fully count the cost of what it means to take orders and to be obedient always often finds themselves trying to get out of the army as quick as possible. But we must understand that the foundation of Christianity, fundamental to Christianity, is that you have in common with other Christians two gifts. You have in common with other Christians two gifts. That one gift is the purchase of salvation through the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. And two, you have the sharing of gospel work in front of you. These are the two things that you have in common with other Christians. And these two commonalities should compel you should compel me to obey God and trust the plan that he has for us. In the same way that a soldier has to trust the plan of his commanding officer as Christians, we must trust the plan that God has for us, even when we don't like it. In fewer words, you could phrase it this way, that you must keep the main thing the main thing. 
As Christians, we are often compelled to make minor things the main things. What kind of worship music do I like? You know, do, do they have people there that look like me? Do they have people there who are my age? Do they have people there who have kids? You know, is it, is it my kind of church? You know, is it my kind? Is it just, do I just feel right about being here? But the book of Philippians, which is what we're going to dive into here in the fall, we're going to start the series. Paul's point in the book of Philippians is that we keep the main thing the main thing. See, in, the, in Philippians, Paul uses the name Jesus or God 50 times, 50 times in four chapters. I dare you to try to use 50 times two names in four chapters of a letter. And so what Paul is saying here, his main thing is you need to understand the relationship between Jesus and God in your life. And then once you understand it, you need to live in subjection or as a soldier would, obediently in all things to the main thing, and that's God. And that's precisely what Paul explains in the first six verses of Philippians. If you will open up your Bible, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be in the first six verses of the book of Philippians. If you don't have a phone, you don't have your Bible, one of the papers that you have in front of you, the handout, will have the scripture there for you. But follow along with me as I read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Philippians, a little background would be necessary for you. If you want to find out the, the real background of the church in Philippi, if you want to know when it was planted, how it was planted, all you have to do is flip back to Acts 16. In Acts 16, uh, 6 through 40, it actually uh, shows uh, the infancy, the birth, and the beginnings of the church in Philippi. It'll be super helpful for you to note in that that Paul and Timothy started the church, planted this church in Philippi in the midst of much persecution. Actually, there was so much persecution that as they continued going south uh, to Thessalonica, when they were there, uh, he actually wrote a letter to them later. And in that that letter to the Thessalonians, Paul said this about the church or about the people of Philippi. He says to the Thessalonians, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamely treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So when Paul and Timothy planted this church in Philippi, they were beaten. They were put in prison for, uh, for taking an unclean spirit out of a servant girl who had been subjected to this spirit for some time. Actually, uh, the, the masters of this slave girl were uh, exploiting her, uh, that demon inside of her, to make them money. And so the minute that they took this unclean spirit out of this girl, uh, these Roman citizens, these two slave owners, realized that their opportunity to exploit her to make money was gone, right? Which you and I would say that's the right decision, but for them, that took away their livelihood, and they took Paul and Timothy to the Roman officials, they beat them, they flogged them, they put them in prison, But it was there that Paul was able to lead the guards to Christ. 
He was there that, that God had delivered them out of the prison. Although they didn't run away, God had opened up all of the gates for them to leave, but yet they stayed. And when the, uh, when the guard was about to take his life, Paul said, whoa, 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 we're here. We, no one left. And then the guard took them home, cleaned them up. And there, after a little bit before that, they went to a river and uh, met a gal named Lydia. And uh, then after that, they went to prison. And this Roman guard and now Lydia and their households were the first of the church in Philippi. Isn't that interesting to know when we jump into the book of Philippians that that's the background and now Paul is now writing to them sometime later, which is why he introduces in Philippians Paul and Timothy, because they know Timothy. Timothy was there when it was planted, and so he introduces, hey, remember me, Paul? This is my disciple, Timothy. We want to greet you. But how does he greet you? Here, it's very interesting that when he says Paul and Timothy, he uses the word servants. In Greek, that word servants is actually the word doulos, which means slave. And he says, so what he says is Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. It's important to note this because in, oftentimes in Paul's letters, he actually introduces himself as the apostle Paul. Because in many of his letters, he has to defend his, apost- his apostolic authority to the people he's writing to. Why? Because oftentimes people said, Paul, you're not that important. Paul, you're not really God's chosen man to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But here he doesn't do that. Why? Because he has a very close relationship to the Philippians. And not only that, he is trying to prove a point to them throughout this letter that it is more important that you are servants of Christ and one another. That it is more important that you are a slave to Christ. And so he introduces himself not as the apostle Paul, but as Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. That should move our hearts and in our minds when we think of our position in this world, that we should live as slaves to Christ, not at the right hand of Christ. We don't have to look at our lives as having to be equal to everyone else's, but in humility, we should count others more significant than ourselves. And that's what Paul is doing here. First and foremost, before he asks anybody to subject subject themselves to authority, he first subjects himself to authority in the very second phrase of the first verse of Philippians. But then he says this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. If you go to compass very often, you know that Greek word saints is hagios, which means holy ones or set apart. And so what he's saying here, just in the first few phrases, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus to all the holy ones, to all the ones who are set apart in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It's important to know when we call ourselves slaves of Christ that we keep in mind scriptures like 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, when it says this, that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see, we are not our own. We've been bought by the precious blood of Christ, so we, we are no longer ourselves. Just like a slave is subject to their masters and owned by their masters and at the will of their masters, that is in the same way we ought to live our lives to Christ. We've been bought by him. We were enslaved to sin. Now we are bought by Christ, so we are no longer our own, but now we belong to God. And then we need to think of two words in verse 2. In order to understand what it means to be subject to Christ, what it, what it actually means for you, what that gift is that we talked about earlier, that you were purchased, we need to understand two words that Paul uses in verse 2. The first says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul is using a version of a Hellenistic greeting mixed with a Hebrew greeting, but that doesn't mean anything right this second. We don't need to get into that. What's important for you to understand is Paul is using these common greetings like, hey, how are you? Or howdy, what they say in the South. But he uses this common greeting, but puts two really special Christian words in here to greet his people. And he says this one first, grace to you and peace from God. What does it mean to have grace and peace from God? Well, first word is grace, and I want to take you to John 1.17. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17. And it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what Paul's actually saying in verse 2 is like, you know that the law was given through Moses, and that law is the law that condemns you because you found that you were a sinner and there was no way for you to be saved. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And so what he's saying is this, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, to all the holy ones who are in Christ, you've received grace because you are in Christ. And that's the grace that you received, and that's the same grace that John is talking about, the same grace that Paul is talking about. And then he says something here. He says, and peace from God. That's interesting because the world is not at peace with God. Actually, the Bible makes it clear that we are in enmity with God that the wrath of God is being stored up for all of those for the time of judgment. But here it says that if you're in Christ, you have grace and you are at peace with God. I want to turn your attention to Colossians 1, 19 through 20. We talk about peace with God. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. See, it says that Jesus was making peace by the blood of his cross. It's important. So when Paul is just saying grace to you and peace from God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not just saying, hey, good to see you. I got some things to tell you. He's saying, no, we have this in common, brothers. Sisters, we have this in common, that we have grace through the blood, through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. And now we are at peace with God. We are at peace with God because of our common gospel, because of the commonality that we have in Christ because of what the gospel has done in our lives. So when he's saying this, the whole two verses, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, to all those who are set apart in Christ, in the grace of Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace, salvation to you, and peace from God. You were once under the wrath of God, now you are in the peace of God in Christ Jesus from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the greeting that Paul is giving to the church of Philippi. What joy in his heart and the joys of his hearers to know that that's who he's talking to and that's who they are as Christians and as people, that they are in Christ. So when he says slaves of Christ Jesus, it is with joy that he subjects himself in obedience to God. And that's our first point tonight, that you must obediently live for God. You will obediently live for God, not because not because you are begrudgingly now a slave of Christ, but because you realize that you were once a slave to sin. And the scripture makes it clear that you'll be a slave to two things, either God or sin. And praise be to God that we get to be bought by the precious blood of Jesus. But it's important for us to understand another Greek word, little bitty one. There's actually two of them. And it's to all the saints in Christ. You see how it says in Christ Jesus? That's a preposition, right? Uh, and it, it's a tricky because right after that it says in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Well, 
those two words, in and at, in Greek are actually the same word. If you actually flip to an NASB Bible, if you have it, it'll actually read this way. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. I point this out because it's important for you to understand what it means to be in Christ. It's a preposition. means you are placed in Christ. There's a geographical location, and you are placed in it. That's why I point out in Philippi. Because if I told you that you were in Philippi, you would know what that means, don't you? That you would know that that means that you are in a city. You are in a particular city with particular customs, with a particular kind of life that you must live, right? If I told you, hey, you now live in Orange County. Well, you know what that means to be in Orange County because you live here. You know how to live your life because you are here. So I point this out to say to you that when Paul is saying you are in Christ Jesus, he means that metaphysically in the same way that you are in Philippi or you are in Orange County. That's important because you must live as cognitively in Christ as you do as cognitively as you live here in Orange County. What does that mean? That means when I say you're in Christ, I'm not just talking about something in the clouds and that someday, somehow, you're going to make it. I'm saying that as, as you, surely as you are in this building and you are sitting in those chairs, you are in Christ. And there comes responsibilities because you are in Christ. You see, you live in America. You're an American. If you're here, you're in America, and so you know things, right? I got to pay taxes, right? I got I to gotta get a job, right? You know in America, you have to do certain things because you are in America, right? You have certain obligations because you live in America. Name any country, any place in the world. You live in there, so you have to live a certain way. It's the same way as living in Christ. You are in Christ. That means there are certain obligations you have to live in Christ. You are in Christ, which means you are subject to him. You see that? I draw these conclusions for you to see that being in Christ means something, and you're going to see it all throughout Philippians. To be in Christ means that you are in his presence. You are bound in him just as geographically as you are in this room right now. And if you want to obediently live for God, you must know that you're in Christ, but you first have to respond rightly to God. And that's why Paul says this, grace to you and peace from God. Well, if you want grace and peace, you have to recognize that grace and peace come from a right relationship with God. You can't have grace, you can't have peace outside of a relationship with Christ. Right? If you want grace, if you want to be at peace with God, you have to respond in repentance and faith to God. Right? You have to understand that you're a sinner. You have to understand that you are outside of Christ, under the wrath of God. And because of the blood of Christ, because of the cross of Christ, you are now receive adoption. That's another scripture, adoption as sons and daughters of God. But you have to recognize it and respond to it to obediently live for God. Because outside of Christ, you can try to live the best life you can, but you're still at enmity with God at the foundation of your life. You want to obediently live for God. You want to know what that looks like. You can flip to Romans 14 or jot this down. Romans 14, 8. We don't have a lot of time to, to sit there. But it says this. For we live, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You see, again, Paul speaking to the church in Rome is saying, it doesn't matter if I live. It doesn't matter if I die. Whatever, I, whatever state I'm in, you see that? Whatever state I'm in, I am God's. I belong to him. I obediently live for him because my whole life it revolves around him. See, without God, I we'll put it this way, with God, I have my being, right? Everything is in subjection to Christ, and I am a slave of Christ, which means everything I do is for him. Whether I live, whether I die, I am his. And again, in Colossians 1.10, write that down, Colossians 
This is how I should live my life. This is what Colossians says. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what it means to obediently live for God. It's to walk in a manner that's pleasing to him. It's like when you wake up in the morning, you're thinking about how can I live today that's pleasing to God? How can I bear good fruit today? How can I do good works today that show that I am in subjection to him, that I'm an obedient slave of Christ because of what he's done for me? That's the life that we must live. And what that means for you, just like the soldier, right, who has enlisted himself in the army, that means you must obey God even when you don't feel like it. You must obey God even on the days you don't feel like it. It also means that you need to obey God even when others don't. See, that's, that's, a, that's a world we live in right now. Half of your friends don't obey God. I would say 90% of your friends don't obey God. But it doesn't matter because you have to obey God. To be a Christian fundamentally means that you must obey him. And when you are don't, you are at enmity with God. Even if you're a Christian, think about that. Even if you're a Christian and you're disobeying God, you are doing the exact you're doing the exact thing. I don't want to use thing. You're, you're making the exact decision that made Christ have to die on the cross. Disobedience. Sin. So for us to understand that obeying God means that we are living a right life for God and that we're responding rightly to God is important. And we got to do it even when others don't. When others say, why are you doing that? You say, because I'm being obedient to God. Well, why are you being obedient to God? Because I was lost and I was a slave to sin. Now I'm a slave to Christ. So what does that mean? Well, it means that if you don't get your life right with God, you're going to be a slave to sin for eternity. See, it's a great opportunity. Your life is a great opportunity to live out loud for the gospel by living obediently to God, by doing the right thing, by living the right life, by doing the right actions. But here's the good news. Here's the good news for you and good news for me, that God never asks you to live out your Christian faith on your own. That's why we have together. That's why it's called together. It means we're not alone, right? And it's the same thing. It's the same concept in verse 3. Look, look at verse 3. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What is Paul doing? He's thanking God for the Philippians. He's like, we were there together. We planted this church. We started this church. We led some of you to Christ. You know, we started this church and you guys have been so faithful with the gospel. He's like, I pray to God and I'm so grateful that I was able to share in this with you, that you were able to share in this with me. I know we're suffering. I know I've been put in jail. We've been beat. But hey, we're here together and we're in Christ. These other people aren't obeying God, but we are. Thank you. Praising God that he has people who love God like he does and who are there because this is what this is. Philippians is a thank you letter. It's a thank you letter to the church in Philippi for giving Paul a gift while he was in prison in Rome. So people say this is a, a letter of joy. That's why everyone knows Philippians as a letter of joy. Well, it's a letter of joy while he's in the midst of persecution in, in a Roman prison. But yeah, he says, look, when I, thank God, when I think of you and I pray to God, I am thankful because you guys are what? Verse 5 because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There's a, I, need you to, I need you to write this down, that word partnership, right? Uh, in English, we, we say partnership. In Greek, it's the word koinonia. I'm telling you to write this down because koinonia is a theme in the book of Philippians. Koinonia is used six times throughout this letter. Six different times, Paul uses a form of koinonia to explain what it means to be in Christ and to be a Christian and to be a part of God's church. And what koinonia means is this. Koinonia means that you have a participation in, a fellowship in. Actually, it uses this, together, right? That's what our 
group is called, right? Together. That's what, that's what koinonia means. And so here it says, because of your togetherness in the gospel, because of your fellowship in the gospel, because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That's what Paul is thanking God for, that the church in Philippi is partnering, fellowshipping in the work of the gospel with Paul. That's important. That's a foundational concept in this book. Why? Because as a church, what it means foundationally for you and me, you're here because of the gospel. This church is here because of the gospel. That's it. There's a lot of practical implications for that. One being this, whatever you don't like, you have to question your own, uh, own idea of why you're here. You need, to, you need to question your own priorities. Why are you here? Because Paul is saying that we're here because of our partnership in the gospel. We're here because our fellowship in the gospel. I'm saved, you're saved, we're here because of that. That's the one reason that we're all here together. You think about it, that's the only reason that we're here together. Is because we have fellowship in the gospel. And so if you don't like your church, or you've been mad at your church, or you're mad at the people in your church, check your motives. Because if, you're, if, you, if your motive isn't the gospel, your, your koinonia, your fellowship, your partnership is not truly because of the gospel. You're here for other reasons that you must check your own heart because you should be here, as Paul is saying, for a partnership in the work of the gospel. And you have to ask yourself this, are you prioritizing the gospel in your own life? You know, is the gospel front and center in your life? Or do you think the gospel is something you had to respond to years ago and now it means nothing? Or are you one of those people who rightly should be that understands the gospel is an everyday aspect of your life? That the death of Christ, the cross of Christ is a daily reminder in my life and a daily lifestyle that I must lift and carry my cross daily and follow Christ. That's the life that you have to live. That's our requirement as Christians is to prioritize the gospel. Because if you don't, understand this, write this down. You will not love your church if you don't love the gospel. Write that down because I can look you now, look me in the eye. You will not love your church if you don't love the gospel. And I'm going to say this, you're going to hate every church you ever go to. You're going to find a reason to leave every church you've ever been to and everyone you will ever go to if you don't love the gospel. And I promise you, if you love the gospel and your church is half of what it should be, you're going to love being a part of your church. Just as Paul is saying, this partnership in the gospel is why we're together. This partnership in the gospel is why you're here. And if you love the gospel, you're going to love this church. And Paul is saying, that's exactly why we're here. And because of that, because you love the gospel, because you love your church, you can do what Paul just did. And that's point number two, is give continual thanks to God. See, Paul is giving continual thanks to God because he loves the church in Philippi. He loves their partnership in the gospel. And as Christians, that's why we can give continual thanks. We can give continual thanks that we are in Christ, right? Just like he said, verse one, that you are in Christ, that you have grace and peace with God, and so we can give continual thanks to God for our salvation, for our koinonia, for our partnership in the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul's doing in this introduction. It's just, just right at the beginning, he's saying, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm here to serve Christ. I'm here to serve his body. And we are saved. We have grace. We have peace with God. And I'm here to just give God thanks for that. Give God praise for that. And if that's not your prayer life, if that's not what your life looks like, let's reevaluate what it means to be a Christian. Because that is the very introduction you should have at the beginning of every day of your life. God, thank you that I'm a Christian. Thank you that you've saved me. Thank you for that church that you have given me. Thank you. Because that church keeps me in the fellowship of the gospel. That church keeps me living obediently to you. This church helps me keep things thanking you out in front of me. 
Because if you don't keep Thanksgiving out in front of you, you're going to forget God's faithfulness. Did you hear that? If you don't keep Thanksgiving in front of you, you're going to forget God's faithfulness. So we need to give thanks. You can jot down these, Psalm 100, 4 through 5. I don't have a lot of time, so I'll give you these quick. Psalm 104 through 5, enter in his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And another one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always, verse 17. Pray without ceasing, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Number one question I've been asked about God. What's God's will for me? It says it right here, literally the exact words. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know what God's will is for you? It's to give thanks in all circumstances. Not just the circumstances that you like, not just the circumstances you feel warm and comfy in, but in all circumstances. Why? Because in your worst circumstance, you are in the best circumstance of your life because you're in Christ. In your worst circumstance, you are still in Christ, and Christ is going to complete the work that he has started in you, which we'll get to in a minute. And that's the reality that you live in your worst day, in the worst life ever lived, if that person is in Christ, they are blessed beyond measure and they have an abundance to be thankful for. In the final verse, you can jot down to Psalm 118.1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. These are the verses, these are the prayers that need to come out of your life every day. Like I said before, giving thanks to God will keep you aware of his faithfulness. That's important. As much as giving thanks to God is to honor God and to keep God first in your life, it's also to remind you of the reality that God is faithful always, not just sometimes. God isn't hit or miss. God doesn't bat 500, right? God bats 1,000. He hits it every time. It's a home run. God is perfect, right? If we think that God is imperfect, it's the imperfection in us. And that's why he says in verse 6, the last verse, that's why Paul says this in verse 6, and I'm sure of this. Right right there already, that first phrase, I am sure of this. Paul's saying, I have complete assurance in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love this because Paul opens it up. He just said everything we just said. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm putting myself below. God is number one, right? We, we are in Christ, right? We have peace with God because we have grace in our Lord Jesus Christ and we have a partnership in the gospel. And because of those things, because of the fundamental truth that I'm a Christian and we get to work together for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I know for a fact, because of our obedience, that this, that he who began a good work into you, he's going to bring it to completion. And why does he know that? Because Paul knows, just as every Christian should know, that it, it isn't up to us. It isn't our work that makes us good. We didn't start it. We didn't keep it going, and we're never going to finish it. But it's he, it's God who began a good work will bring it to completion. And that's the trust and the faithfulness that we can have as Christians because we know we can't save ourselves. Christ did that. We know we can't keep ourselves saved because only Christ can do that. And we know that at the end of the day, we can't make ourselves right by God. Only Christ can do that. So that's why Paul is saying this, and it's point number three, is you must have complete confidence in God's plan. Have complete confidence in God's plan. Right? You need to be fully confident that Christ will complete the work he has started in you because he will. You can't get in the way of it. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is going to convict you concerning sin and judgment and righteousness, and you're going to live in it, and you might go kicking and screaming, but God is going to complete the work that he has started in you because that's who God is, and he's faithful. So when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to your church's growth, I'm not just talking about butts and seats. 
I'm talking about the fellowship that you have in the gospel. I'm talking about if you really take seriously your fellowship, your koinonia with your community concerning the gospel, your church is going to grow. Because you know the only reason you're sitting here together is for the gospel. That's the only reason you could be here. Because that's the only reason that this church exists is for our partnership in the gospel. And so by that, when I say for your church's growth, what I mean is this, that if you are living obediently to Christ, this church is going to grow because it has no other choice. Because obedience to God demands that your church grows. Because that means you're being obedient and faithful to be ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through you. That's what it means to be a gospel-driven church. That's what it means to be a church that has a koinonia, fellowship around the gospel. And that's why you can be confident that God is going to grow your church. You want community? Be in Christ and have your fellowship in the gospel. You can be confident in your sanctification. You might say this, I don't look as much like God as I wish I did. Well, as R.A. Torrey says, I'm surprised you look as much like God as you do. Right? In our sin, think about that. I'm surprised that I look as much like Christ's image as I do. Why? Because God. It's his work, not mine. If it was, if, if, if it was up to me, I would look a lot worse than I do. But it's Christ's work that has me sanctified, right? And that's what 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this. You want to know what else the will of God is? Right here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I've already given you, like, I, I hope I have just changed your life with God's word tonight. Because I've already given you two scriptures that tells you explicitly this is God's will for you. And here's your second one. Sanctification. That you be made more into the image of God. And who's going to do that? You? Oh, God. You can be confident that you will be sanctified because that's God's will. And if you are obedient to God, if you live your life as a slave to Christ, and you have complete confidence that it's God's will in your life, and you give thanks to God and keep that out in front of you so you can remember God's faithfulness, your sanctification is going to be completely obvious to people around you. And finally, for your glorification. That's just a big word saying at some point when Christ comes back right here, at, right at the, we'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's when you will have glorification, right? That, at that time that we were all hoping for, that one day we will look like Christ, that we will be like him, right? And I can actually quote that for you. 1 John 3, 2, jot that down. For your glorification, 1 John 3, 2, it says this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know is when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's our hope. That's our expectation. And that's why we can confidently say that one day I'm going to look like Christ. I'm going to live like him because I'm in him. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, guys, this life may be bad and we may be in prison and we may be getting beat up, but we are in Christ. We have hope. We have peace with God. So let us partner in the gospel and do exactly what God wants us to do because we know that one day we're going to be with him. We're going to look like him because that's his will for us, that we're sanctified, that we're made into his image, that we're conformed into the image of God. Three verses. One, Proverbs 14, 26. It says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. That it's the fear of God that we can have confidence in. So you want to have confidence in God's plan? You must first fear God. You get that? You hear that? And that's not a popular phrase, is it? That if you want to have confidence in God, you must fear God. Because if you don't fear God, you're not going to follow God. So fear him, and you will have strong confidence in him. And it actually says, continues, and his children will have a refuge. Your fear of God will give you confidence, and it will be your refuge when you need him. Hebrews 4, 16, the second verse, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You want to have confidence? You have a right relationship with God. 
right? And that means that you have trusted in Christ Jesus, right? Christ had entered the holy place once and for all, right? That we have been saved not with blood of goats, but of the blood of the Son of God. And so now we have confidence to draw near to God because now we are made right because of God. You see that? So I can have full confidence to draw near to God and be in his presence in, right here, draw near to the throne of grace that I was never allowed to be in, that I would have dropped dead if I ever tried to get there on my own. But God made a way, so now I can, with confidence in God's plan for me, enter into his presence and give thanks to him. You see that? And then lastly, 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. This is an important verse about God's faithfulness and having confidence in God that he's going to do what he's going to do. It says this, right? It gives you some, com- some comparative. If we endure, we will reign with him. That's up to us, right? We got to endure. And that's true in our Christian faith. We have to endure. We have to keep going, right? If we deny him, he will deny us, right? One for one. If we deny him, he's going to deny us. Okay, next, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Did you hear that? That means that's one thing. He cannot be faithless because he cannot deny himself. Why? It's because God is faithful. God is 100%. God is perfect. So even if we are faithless, we can be confident that God is going to be faithful to his promises always. And that's why you can have confidence in God, that you can trust his plan, and you can be obedient to him and give thanksgiving to him because you know that every day God is going to be 100% faithful. It's that hesed love, right? We just talked about earlier, that steadfast love, that God is faithful. It's covenantal. It is not going to end. It can't stop. You can't get rid of it. It's going to be there forever. The world's going to pass away, but the word of God will never pass away. And that's the trust that we can have. We can have a complete confidence in God's plan. And that means this, you can trust God that he will fulfill all of his promises. But what does that mean for you? That means you have to learn God's promises. You want to have faith in God? You want to trust in God? You must learn his promises. Because if he's faithful to 100% of his promises and you don't know any of them, how can you ever have trust in God's promise? Because you don't know it. Because you've been faithless. But your faithlessness never changed his faithfulness. His faithfulness is still there. You just need to go, go learn about it. You just need to go understand it. And by doing that means that you're going to go read about God's faithfulness in his word. And the more you read about God's faithfulness, the more you're going to trust and have confidence in God's plan because he's been faithful since the beginning of time and he will be faithful for eternity. And finally, imagine with me that you're going to enlist in the army. Imagine this. You're about to get ready. You're counting the cost. You're saying, okay, I'm going to make this step. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to boot camp. I'm going to go through with this. But this time it's not the army of America or the army of Mexico. It's God's army. And you've committed and you've made the choice. And your choices are to obediently serve God, your commander. Obediently serve him. Even if you don't like it. Even if you don't want to. Even if it doesn't feel good. Because you've enlisted in God's army, because you have peace with God through grace in Christ, because of the cross, because of his blood, you can obediently serve God. And secondly, you can give thanks that God has given you other soldiers to serve with. Think about that. You're not enlisted on your own. You're enlisted with all of the saints, all the holy ones, all the ones who are set apart. And you get to serve God with them. You get to lock arms and you get to run this race you get to go be a soldier with your church. And that's why you can give thanks to God. And thirdly, lastly, that you have confidence that your commander knows what is best for his soldiers every day. You don't ever have to go out there into battle 
wondering if God's got your best intentions in mind, wondering if God's going get, to get this, because his faithfulness has proved it since the beginning of time to eternity that he's always going to win. God's always going to win. He's always going to be faithful, and everything he says is going to come to pass. And you're not going to find a better commander in the universe than one who is always right and who will always stand victorious. Pray with me. God, we pray now that even if we go into groups with the, the time that we have left, God, that, that we can look at Philippians and see the, the, the joy that it has, but also to see the, the deep pain and the deep, the deep sorrow that, that comes with, with serving you, and that is because we will know that life isn't always going to go well and know that people aren't always going to look at us and smile, but as Paul and Timothy realized that they were flogged and beaten, stuck into prison, and even as Paul is writing this thank you letter with so much gracious words to the Philippians that he's doing so in prison. But reading this, you would not think that. Father, please give us that thanksgiving, that thankfulness to our church, to the people around us, that we can serve you, that we can live obediently to you, even in persecution, even when life doesn't go our way, even when we don't want to do something that your word obviously says to do. But let us, as slaves of Christ, as doulos of Christ Jesus, serve you obediently and to love you because of the, what you did, because that we are bought with the precious blood of Christ. We are no longer our own, but yours. God, help us learn that, understand that as we are in our small group. God, and help these questions pierce our hearts and help us know more about you because of our small groups. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.